Welcome back to Devcast today with uh, Chris Heilman. Hello. Hello. Uh, I and you are a really famous guy. No. Uh, Tessy says to your famous guy on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that was an internal joke that went too far. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's not an internal joke because the first uh, time I met you uh, after the dinner party we had at Oredev for two years ago, it was in a web magazine, uh, really high famous web magazine in um, in England. It's called Web, uh, and you have wrote an article about uh, Netbag, uh, yeah, 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 and it's really good and. Uh, Uh, then I uh, recognize you as a former Mozilla developer or Mozilla employee and now a Microsoft employee. So it would be really fun to hear your perspective on the web. And with me here today, I have, of course, my colleague, Tess Ferrandes and Peter Drogge. So welcome to this podcast. But first, Chris, who are you? Well, I'm Chris. I'm a, uh, I've been a former radio journalist turned web developer. And I've been doing yeah, web development for a long, long time because I think it's the medium to support it's the, it, it's a replacement for TV and radio for me so that's why I always wanted to do things on it and I always saw it as a, a medium I didn't see it as a software platform and that's why I always wanted to make sure that we have the best platform for people to publish on and not only to program on and I think that's why I got into the web standard world into the accessibility world and not only into the programming world because I want to build interfaces that people can use and I want to empower people to publish on the web and I think we forget this far too often nowadays which is like let's build apps let's build things that people have to download and give us money rather than like not understanding that the web is only because it is a platform for publication it became that big as it is right now and not a platform for software otherwise people would have built operating systems and don't don't that anymore mm-hmm. actually a lot of operating systems got replaced by the web mm-hmm. As I said before, you uh, first time I met you I was at Ardev. I think it was two years ago, and then you were still a Mozilla uh, Mozilla, Mozilla employee. Uh, how is your story, Mozilla and now Microsoft? Well, the idea was that uh, I wanted to help the open web, and I realized that I ended in Mozilla doing all the things that I needed to do. So Mozilla knows the open web; it's born out of the open web. It was made because Internet Explorer was a browser that was a monopoly. So Firefox was the competitor and said like there needs to be uh, more diversity and uh, I realized I didn't have anything to do with Mozilla anymore it was basically everybody who knew Mozilla already knew what we were doing and everybody when I talked about new standards in HTML5 and great things the web can do the answer was always like oh but we've got to support Internet Explorer so I'm like okay so what do I do about this and then I thought joining Microsoft and helping them with the new browser that they wanted to bring out uh, was the right decision to do and so far I've been very very happy there and it's uh, nobody is keeping me in their basement and uh, punishes me and uh, forces me to do things it's it's as open a company as it can be at the moment and that was quite a shock to me as well because I prepared for backlash I prepared that the community would be saying like I'm a sellout I'm going to the evil death star but the company so far I've released more open source stuff in the last few months than I released in the last few months in Mozilla and that's why I'm here they wanted somebody with who knows about open source, who knows about releasing things and knows about developers. And I managed to get the code out that people sat on for a few years. It's very refreshing to see developers in Microsoft being allowed to release code because a lot of them had great ideas but didn't have a voice. And now they have one and it's it's really rewarding. And what's your role at Microsoft more? 
Okay. Uh, the, of, the official title is Senior Program Manager uh, for uh, for Open Web and Edge, uh, but basically the same thing. I'm a, I'm a principal evangelist for web outreach, and I help um, influencers on the off the web, as we call them, or as everybody calls them, which is a terrible word, but other computer geeks who like the open web to understand what we're doing and give them early access to what we do, and also to make sure that interoperability with other browsers is on everybody's radar. That's the main point while I'm here. I'm not there to advocate using one browser. I'm there to advocate web standards. So Tess and Peter, you <coughs> have heard uh, now uh, Christian's talk about the state of the web. What uh -huh. are you thinking about it? What is the state of the web? I think the state of the web is it's very... A mess. No, I think it's very positive. I think... Um, I like the way you ended off with saying like the outlook should be good, like we should be looking forward and to things we we can do rather than things we can't do on the web. So, because I think for a long time it's been like that, like don't do this because not everyone can do this. And now it's more, yeah, I'm I'm very happy and very positive about <laughs> the future of the world. It, when, you, when you worked on HTML5 and the capabilities and you showed all these cool demos of things that are possible, it was always very depressing when people like, yeah, but I have to do this browser and that browser and I can't do it. And that is gone now. I mean... Mm. All the experimental websites, you know, like uh, um, Mozilla Test Drive, uh, no, IE Test Drive and Mozilla uh, Demo Studio and Chrome uh, experiments, all of them are dead now. Nobody cares about them any longer because we don't need to show the future technology any longer because the future technology is already in the browsers. The interface layer of the browsers, CSS and uh, animations and these kind of things are great already. They're even better once we have the animation APIs and we've got more control over them. But the new functionality that we're now fighting over is things like not fighting over, but we're showcasing are things like service workers, web components, these kind of things. They're becoming more technical. The day-to-day -day things that we needed for Flash to be not important anymore, we now have across all browsers without hacks. And that's something that we don't celebrate enough because in the past we always say like okay like this could be the future look how shiny we do this interactive music video kind of things it was always the inspirational demos but now we have all the functionality in browsers so it's time to put these uh, capabilities into boring environments as well and not only into interactive <laughs> music videos next time I'm seeing it, uh, an upload facility that doesn't have a preview for images I'm going to scream like all these things are possible there's, there's so much beautiful functionality in browsers that you could use in a content management system but people are not looking at these things yet so I'm, I've been wondering about something for a while because while the web is more and more open or more and more kind of standard space Apps are more and more closed into their environments, like you know, mobile apps or whatever. Do you think there is a future, like a very close future, where um, apps are completely replaced by the web? I hope so. I mean, I gave a TED Talk about this a year ago where I said that apps to me, and I stand by this, are the, the single most step backward in software distribution that we've done. Because they make uh, software, a, a, a internet is software on demand. I want to know what 6 plus 5 is. I type it into Google, I get the results. Or Bing. <laughs> no, I Google. And uh, I don't have to download a calculator application and have to give in my credit card details and then say like, oh, I don't want to have the full version. I don't want to click on your ad. I just basically have that. Applications made software a, a consumer product, again. 
after we replace desktop applications with the web already. I mean, nobody uses an email client any longer unless they really have to. Most people use a web client to actually read their emails because then they're independent of, of, they can do it on their mobile phone, they can do it on their desktop, they can do it wherever. And uh, with with apps, we did a step back on that, which was a lucrative idea because you can charge money for it. We still haven't found a solution how to charge money for websites without annoying end users. Yeah. And that's a big, big issue right now, seeing ad blockers and these kind of things that people are finally pushing back to like the, the, the monetization model of the, of the web is the next thing we really have to solve everything else is solved and applications you see the numbers of downloads of apps is dwindling year by year and the only ones who make money with apps are actually the big players like Google and Facebook because these are the apps that people are using and the chat apps like WhatsApp and these and kind of games. things some games but a game has about three months uh, period time where people use it and then they get bored of it and then they get think of it I mean uh, you see King and you see people with like Candy Crush having massive successes right now but for example Angry Birds nobody talks about anymore yeah, nobody knows who Singa is any longer it's it's a very cutthroat market the, uh, the, the games market so having a runaway success as a game is a very very um, it's, it's not a thing you can plan no. and a lot of people are against you because there's these game houses that release 400 games a week and make like 99p with each of them and make their money that way so making your money with one game is going to be a very very tricky thing to do but to, to bring it back to a technical level the proposal that Mozilla and Google is doing right now with progressive apps is I think a very very interesting one it still to me feels we have to break the symptom of, of apps like it's 2016 I don't have to download a massive binary file just to get some functionality I should get capabilities of the device in uh, in a uh, in a in a small code base that I download and get bit by bit. Uh, the progressive apps, what they do is basically you have an HTML5 application and you you load it in your browser, and the third time, the fourth time you uh, the, sorry, the first time you load it, it downloads a lot of stuff offline. So next time you load it, it's faster. The third time you load it, it says like, hey you really like this website, do you want to have an icon on your desktop to actually start it from there? So it blurs the moment between installed application and website. And I think that's, that's something that is a very interesting proposal yeah. because it gives people the convenience of an app being like an icon that they click on, but it doesn't give them the overhead of like every single change in application means I have to re-download the whole thing. I mean, every time I go, uh, I go home from uh, uh, from a roaming with my with my phone. I go back to my wireless. My Android phone updates fifty apps, and I don't know why. I really don't know because most of the time the functionality is either something I don't want, or it's just a new ad being loaded. Like or uh, apps that you no longer use. Yeah. At least that's what it's like. Yeah, exactly. Like I didn't even know that thing was on my phone anymore, mm -hmm. and it downloaded 50 meg in the background again. Why? Yeah. You know, it, it would be fun if apps vanish over time. <laughs> like when I don't use them, they delete themselves. <laughs> we should go back to, to the web. Uh, the picture you gain now is a rather happy world with no wars and everyone is happy and the flower power and so on. So the war is over in, in the web. I, I mean, I allude to the browser war. and. Uh, well, the war is... <laughs> yeah, I, I always found that very disturbing anyways, that people get very excited about how companies beat each other up about innovation. Um There are, of course, things that companies keep for themselves and want to innovate and want to be seen as somebody else. The big war is not about functionality in the browser. The big war is about getting the developers. 
because we don't have enough developers in the market and people want to hire the best developers. So a lot of companies throw out open source solutions which are not necessarily open source, just something to have out there to lure developers to start working for them. And a lot of uh, a lot of browser makers do have the same thing. We want to be seen as the most innovative, the most amazing company that does the coolest browser so people join the company because of that. So... Um, <coughs> That's one thing where there is a kind of a war raging. But the interoperability between different browsers, every browser maker by now understands that it makes much more sense to build things that everybody can control because then, uh, then we have more developers working on us. Otherwise, we have to uh, – maintaining a developer community that only works on your product is high, uh, is high cost and high maintenance. Supporting a standard means the other browser makers will also maintain and help those people out so you don't have to just invest in, in yourself. Peter, I know that you like JavaScript, and JavaScript has been a, a language we have had in the, a bit <laughs> far from us because we like C Sharp and uh, yeah. some kind of real languages. <coughs> what are you thinking about JavaScript? And uh, um, I'm liking where we're heading right now. Um, I'm really liking how actually Microsoft and Google can sort of join forces. Uh, using technologies like transpilers for um, TypeScript to do Angular 2 for Google. That that really sets the bar for where we're heading. But that said, there's a new JavaScript library popping up every other week. So there's no chance in hell that you can actually stay on top of everything unless you're like the guy from the internet. Um, that is what I'm seeing troubling My right now. My problem with JavaScript over, and like since forever, has always been that it's like extremely hard to write it right, and it's been hard to test now, and that's changed. But it's mm. like when I'm working with people and they write something, but they happen to write like a lowercase letter here or whatever, and then you don't discover that until like a week down the line when you happen to push that button and and. I don't know. That's what unit tests are for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then you need to new, you use unit tests. Yeah. That's true. That's the biggest problem. I think JavaScript has grown up in terms of a language with ES6. The functionality is there, but a lot of the developers that are building JavaScript or writing JavaScript traditionally, and I count myself amongst them, are not coming from a computer science background with the structure that comes with that. So uh, uh, basically test-driven development and something is a very common thing in a node environment where you use JavaScript on a server side, but on client side for a lot of companies it's still seen as like unnecessary overhead. Yeah, It's very hard to um, to push um, test-driven development to into like especially for if you're mostly doing prototypes or if you're mostly doing like quick things that you know are going to have a lifetime of, I don't know half a year or whatever it's like I like test-driven development, but it's extremely hard to get, you know, the buy-in and, and actually justify, you know, the learning curve for people if you're working with new teams all the time. I mean, I can be a stick in the mud here again as well. I mean, we always say, like, uh, you can't write code properly. It's because we learned it in computer science the way we write it in Java or in C++ or in C or in C Sharp. But then if you look at the state of software in general, 
it's a mess. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. I mean, the amount of unmaintainable software in hospitals and in, in finance institutions and these kind of things, we always pretend that we have control over it by the way we've written it, we learned it in university. But if that's the case, how come there's so much malware out there? How yeah. come there's so much security problems in software? Maybe we're just fooling ourselves that this is the right way of doing <laughs> it. And we uh, we do it because it's easy to judge it. As yeah. I mean, the, our whole school system is based on how easy it is for a teacher to put a mark on it not like what is the, what is the student learning from it so um, maybe computer science needs to be redesigned a bit as well and going into like development more rather than like um, oh patterns and these kind of things just because we used it for 50 years doesn't mean it's still a good thing no i don't want to go all uncle bob on this <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you think what, what will uh, change now with the new standard the javascript standard for me as a developer coming from c sharp i think this is a, a grown-up standard with classes and so on what's your opinion about that uh, it, that's basically a lot what it allows you to do. It's it, two things made, made it possible. First of all, that people coming from other languages feel more familiar in it. Co- uh, secondly, with block scoping and uh, and and, sta- sta- uh, um, and statics and these kind of things, we can write JavaScript, which is less memory consuming. We're for like for like environments like mobiles and these kind of things, and it also made JavaScript a better compile target, and that was the biggest thing that we wanted to do, because a lot of people write C, C and these kind of things. Games like AAA games are not written in JavaScript, and we just had Mscripten and Asm.js and WebAssembly and these things right now to allow people to write it in their happy language and then convert it to JavaScript to run in a browser, rather than teaching a a person who's incredibly good at C sharp to become a JavaScript developer. That's not really useful so we wanted to make sure that javascript becomes a compile target as well and this is what es6 allows us to do uh, what is very important to point out is that classes in es6 are still a simulation they're not natively classes they're still uh, they're still factory functions that go into a prototypical inheritance chain afterwards so it's just a convenience method on top of javascript because we couldn't change the main core of javascript because that would make not backwards compatible So that's something to very much make people aware. But the syntactic sugar that is in ES6 right now allows people to uh, to overcome their prejudices towards JavaScript. I would say is a lot a lot of things with that and structures like weak map and uh, and uh, map and map and set and these kind of things allow you to actually build much more larger applications than before, which wasn't possible in JavaScript in a very clean manner before that. So speaking of um, backwards compatibility, we had. Uh, You started a discussion, Peter and Chris, uh, before we put the recording on about like, so what if your boss says you need to um, support IE6? Do it. Support it with HTML and a bit of CSS and don't give it any JavaScript. Mm Mm-hmm. The whole concept of of web is that if your product looks the same and feels the same on every environment and every browser, then you've done something terrible. You release something that caters to the lowest common denominator, or you release something that makes everybody unhappy. The idea of uh, of the web is that your code uh, adapts itself to the environment. That's why it's such a, a, a that's that's why it's such flexible code. That's why it's so hard to write a JavaScript engine that performs well because your code could be anything and has to and has to adapt to everything. So when somebody says like support Internet Explorer six, then your answer is like support with what? 
yeah. what does support mean if you if you want me to make a 60 frames per second animation in an internet explorer 6 on a machine where the operating system has been upgraded for 15 years go and leave the company and work somewhere else <laughs> because this is waste of your time Old uh, browsers are a, are a security problem, first and foremost. So that's what I normally, when people talk to me, like, yeah, but we have to support that old browser. And I'm like, okay, what do you do against malware? What do you do against drive-by downloads? What do you do to keep your people secure? So that's what the real problem with old browsers is. And that's partly because it was hardwired to the operating system and had far too much access to Very the file system than it should have. Yeah. So... Uh, giving the same to everybody is not is not what the web is about, and that even starts with not even with code. It's the same with like alternative text for images. If the image can't be loaded, it should show a text saying like "picture of a puppy." Mm-hmm. It should not say like um, "empty image" or something like that. That's the way to think about the web. Always think about the worst scenario, and then start from that one and make it better that way. The cool thing is that the languages of the web, like HTML and CSS, have that built in. JavaScript doesn't, because JavaScript was meant to be a, a much more uh, powerful, powerful language for the web. But HTML, you make a syntax error in HTML, the browser tries to fix it for you or ignores it. In CSS as well, if a CSS line has a problem, the parser goes on like, yeah, I don't know this. I'm going to the next one. Forget about it. In JavaScript, one le- one error and you're done. So uh, that's where when it says like, oh, bring that functionality of JavaScript also to Internet Explorer 6 and 8. No, don't. It's totally fine if a form gets submitted. If you go to Google right now or to Bing and you turn off JavaScript, you still have a form field that gives you a search result page when you send it off. Once you have JavaScript enabled, it gives you the autocomplete and it gives you the previews, the live stuff, and this is exactly how the web should work. Yeah. So you brought up something else that uh, struck a big chord with me, and that um, when I when I develop something that is meant for like the general public and like not for a specific group, then I always think of my mom as one of the users. And you brought up, for example, that not everyone goes in and installs like the latest or like a different browser because that's cool or some, you know, that you you should target like standard browsers on operating systems. Yeah. Well, the main thing about traditional users like that, I'm not going to say the mom was then there's a big feminist problem right now and people say like, oh, your mom doesn't know computers. Um, It's more that uh, uh, the traditional users don't like change as well. And uh, uh, an interface that they learned a few years ago, which is like filling in a form field and finding a submit button and pressing that submit button to send something and get something back, feels much more familiar to them than a drag and drop experience with like 10 things and icons that they don't understand. Uh, We learned that when I worked on Yahoo Finance, like we had so many more great versions of uh, of Yahoo Finance internally that used Mm. coolest, newest technology that never got released because every time we tested it with finance users, they used that website since 96 and didn't want to have any single pixel to change because it would freak them out. So um, thinking about these kind of users and the out-of-the-box users is um, is very important, but also don't think of the uh, user testing is incredibly important in this case. That's why I love that Edge is now the browser out-of-the-box in Windows 10 because I don't have to think about it any longer. I know people with Windows 10 will have an evergreen browser out-of-the-box 
They will no other operating system does that. Safari to a degree, but Safari only updates when the operating system yeah. updates as well. And I think that's a very very important step. That's why Chrome OS was a great idea as well. An operating system that updates itself. Great. This is exactly what we need. People are still afraid of computers, and as geeks, we don't understand this. Absolutely. The amount of people that say like in user testing when there's a database error or I must have done something wrong. You cannot do anything wrong to make a computer error. My favorite was this. There was this this picture going around the internet a few months ago where somebody accidentally opened the uh, developer tools and she was completely freaking out about <laughs> what she was reading there. And it was like, oh, is it like it said something about like protect child node was an error message or something. Ooh. And she's like, is that the internet police asking me to protect children on the internet <laughs> and things like that? These users exist, and I think it's first very important that we understand that not everything has to be highly technical and the the simpler it you can keep it the better yeah. and uh, 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 yeah it's it's very important to understand that out of the box browsers are a very very important part of the web and people don't upgrade browsers because there's new functionality in them they upgrade browsers because they want to use services Like for example, when we ask people why they don't use Firefox, why they use Chrome over Firefox, a lot of people said because Chrome translates pages for me. Okay. Why can't Firefox do that? We're like, well, yeah, if we could get access to the cloud service of Google for free to do that, we could put that in <laughs> Firefox as well. But we were, we didn't. But that was a functionality that a lot of people do. I love these use cases of the web. For example, I know people in countries where the government controls internet access that use Google Translate to look at websites that they cannot look at. Okay. Because the Google Translate server is in America, so this one has access to that one, and the translation goes into Arab countries or things like that. So they use a translation service as a proxy to work around censorship. That is very interesting. <laughs> a similar discussion that you had in, in your talk was about developer and end users, and the web has been. We have been more concentrating around developers of how we should develop websites with uh, new frameworks, new libraries, more than uh, thinking about the end user that should use that site afterwards. Yeah, especially when it comes to budgeting, time budgeting and work budgeting, we, uh, we value developer convenience much more over we value end user convenience. And what's that's a problem? It is. I mean, when, for example, when I use free frameworks because I like these frameworks and it allows me to make a very clicky, amazing interface, that's great. But if my end users on a uh, on a mobile phone connection wait 15 seconds before the first thing shows up on the page, then nobody won. In essence, the people who use our websites, who click on things, are the people who make our money. So those are the ones that we work for. So if we have a bit of inconvenience as a developer, if it's harder for us to build an interface, that's what we get paid for. That's the whole idea of getting a paycheck. You're not getting a paycheck because you're cute. Okay, I do, but uh, you don't get a paycheck because people want you to be there. You get a paycheck because you do things that other people don't want to do or other people don't have the skill for. So we became very arrogant in thinking that the that the web should be for us as developers, but in essence, it's for our, the, our end users. And every time we put something in their way, we failed as a delivery mechanism. So you mean that we shouldn't use any frameworks or libraries? Whatsoever? Yeah, it's all black and white. There's never any gray area Great, between thanks. them. Yeah, so that's exactly <laughs> the kind of thinking that got us where we are right now. Uh, no, I'm saying like we should always weigh the possibility. How much does it cost for the end user? to get the benefits from it. So if a framework allows us to build interfaces that the web cannot do at the moment, like massively complex forms, 
totally fine to use a framework. But if the framework is so heavy that it takes us two minutes to load it with like, please wait until the thing has loaded, then we haven't uh, haven't won anything. Remember flash tunnels? Remember when flash websites took like two minutes to in, uh, to initialize? That was not fun. And we shouldn't do that on the web right now. And there's great talks by uh, Jake Archibald from Google, for example, where he shows how to make an application really perform really well and render really, really quickly before the interaction happens. So instead of relying on everything and loading everything and then showing the interface, you should show a very simple interface and then load the rest of the libraries when you need them mm-hmm. rather than just locking your into them, yeah. which of course I think that's what we see right now. Um, everyone's using jQuery just because they're loading jQuery, <coughs> they're using it for selectors, but you could just query the DOM directly instead. Yeah, or even worse, people use React right now because they don't trust the DOM anymore and basically want to have a virtual DOM because it works well for Facebook, <laughs> so it must work for everybody. So all of these libraries have their place and have their use cases, but because they're fashionable to use people just use them for everything at the moment and that's just a learning thing i think we will get burned a few times with Mm -hmm. that and then we will stop doing it but sadly enough we have to do go through that learning process over and over again as well it also didn't help that every tutorial out on this planet was basically oh uh do you have a problem with css yeah use jquery then you don't have that problem (laughs) or even better is like uh, uh, every answer on uh, on uh, every demo script that you saw on Stack Overflow was using jQuery rather than like using the thing that is in the browser. Exactly. And people copy and paste things from from uh, from Stack Overflow without thinking about it. I call it the full Stack Overflow developer. <laughs> because but but <laughs> how, how large, for example, jQuery, it's a, it's a rather small library and it's it used to be really small, but it got bigger and bigger the more new functionality went in there. All of them are the same way. Every week there's a new library saying like it's better than the other because it's smaller, and then three months later this one is big again, so another new smaller one will come. That's the problem of generic code. Generic code is always too big for its own good because we try to predict the future in generic code. We say like, okay, this is now generic. This might happen. This might happen. This might happen. So we put lots of this might happen cases in our code rather than just like this happens, so let's write the code for it. <coughs> and this is what libraries try to solve every problem at the, that might occur, and I don't think we need those problems in most cases. Can I ask, you, you talk a lot about evergreen browsers, and I might be a little bit ignorant. I think I know what you mean by it. Can you kind of explain? It's basically a browser that updates itself without the need of the operating system updating. Okay. So when this browser starts and it says like, oh, there's a new version available, I download in the background without the people having to restart the browser, that's what an evergreen browser is. I will go back to the JavaScript libraries because you got a question after the, the presentation about this, uh, should I use this your uh, library? And you were talking about how, how, how can you in some way um, see what library you should uh, count on? It should, should be... Should be still left in uh, in one hour, uh, one, one hour maybe, but one year <laughs> <laughs> and so on. And you have uh, some discussion about that. Well, it's tricky. I mean, uh, you want to. It's like any piece of software, or any piece of hardware. It's like when you when you buy it, it looks shiny, but you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, when I choose a framework, I um, 
I, I test a lot of frameworks out that are new, and I look at them before I tell people that they can use them in production. I want at least a few implementations in the wild. I want to see companies using them for something. And I also look at how the organizers or how the original developers of the framework, how they deal with feedback on uh, on GitHub issues and these kind of things, how many people contribute to it. So if it's one person doing the magical framework and you really, really like what that person has been doing, well, you better hope that that person will do it for the next five years and gets paid for it somehow. And if they don't get paid for it somehow, then it's probably not something you can trust and can re- to rely on. So the more people fork it, the more people become part of the system to support it, um, the, the more reliable it becomes. But even that might be a fact. I mean, Microsoft supported jQuery and everything. I was thinking jQuery. And uh, jQuery back then sold itself as like, okay, we solve all Internet Explorer 8 problems. Now, jQuery 3 that just came out has no compatibility layer anymore. They took that out to say like, okay, IE is dead. We're not supporting this any longer. So all the people who back then said like, well, Microsoft tells us this is the way to support old browsers and we don't do it any longer. So it's kind of – it's even that is tricky and uh, – But then again, I mean, if you maintain it and you understand it as well, one big thing that not many people uh, think about when it comes to uh, library development, uh, library usage as well, is that you sign up for that as a company. So you should have an internal maintenance uh, schedule as well. Say like, okay, our three developers right now love blah, fossil, JS. And okay, what if those three guys leave? Where is the documentation? How to use it? Where is the uh, where is the thing uh, to actually maintain it? So if you subscribe yourself to using a library, you should also be ready to commit back to that library and to write part of that library and become part of that community because that's what open source is about. So you open you source library more responsibility as a user of an open source library. Yes, I mean open source means not that you get free software. Open source means that you become part of a community that you should should give back to as well. And uh, if that giving back is just writing unit tests, for example, like every library needs, that's a very simple thing to do, which you have to do for your professional environment anyways. So it's not that you choose a library because it's free software and solves problems for you. It's also is that you choose a library and it's a cost for you and a, a liability for you to use it. So make sure that even if everything goes wrong with that library, you still have people in-house that can maintain them for you in the future. I wonder how many are thinking like that. <laughs> yeah, that is a very, very interesting. Would you say that all it needs is security holes in a few of the massive libraries out there in older versions, and then people will start thinking about it much more, and that will come. But would you say that web developers have been way too optimistic? Or to like forgiving and just using tools and libraries. I think lazy is the right word to say. I'm, I'm trying to be kind here. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. It's uh, laziness is good. Laziness is a virtue of a developer. I mean, like uh, 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 Larry Page said that one time. Because uh, we don't want to do things twice. That's why we do generic code. And uh, but uh, in, in the end, we just trusted things to work for us. And it's even funny, like a discussion we had after the talk when he said, like, because jQuery looks much cleaner, and you're like, you know what? for somebody who came from Perl to JavaScript it doesn't look cleaner I don't like chaining I don't like like dot this dot this dot this and 10,000 anonymous functions calling each other I don't find it more readable but people who started with it of course find it more readable than the other one because they're more used to it so I think we just became uh, uh, jQuery helped a lot of developers to start developing for the web 
Most of them were not web developers. They did not want to think about problems of browsers. They did not want to think about problems of JavaScript. They did not want to think about progressive enhancement. They just wanted to release a prototype really quickly and sell it as a full product. And this is what happened, and that's good. I mean, it, it got so much more people into the uh, into the uh, into the market. And I love jQuery. I love John Resig. He did a, ma- a really amazing job with that. But it also caused a whole generation of developers who think magical things happen to you when you use a library, yeah. instead of just understanding that problems of the library also become your problem, especially when you don't update your library all the time. As I said, we had this great example of a company in England that has like over 150,000 pages with 73 different departments maintaining each part of the page. So they don't talk to each other. They don't know who each other are. Sometimes they're in different countries. And I met this poor guy who now has to re, uh, re-architect the whole website. And he said, like, we only know how old parts of the pages by what version of jQuery was used in it. Because people just took a shortcut, sometimes a beta of that week, and put it in there into live production. And they... The amount of like code that is duplicated in that website because of helper functions is incredible. So perhaps companies should actively try to refactor or even remove libraries. Well, right now, definitely. I mean, uh, thinking about looking at the statistics and how many people are really using these old browsers and ch- testing in those old browsers and seeing if the functionality that the, the library brings is really necessary would be another interesting one as well. That was always my biggest fallacy about using libraries to say like, okay, we support old browsers if we use this library. It doesn't mean that you don't have to test in them. It just means that you rely on magic that the, the, it works in those. And nobody wants to test in those old browsers because you have to use virtual machines or uh, uh, or a cloud service that does these kind of things. So when you use a library that says, like, we give you full functionality of animations and drag and drop and beautiful cubes with videos on each side in every browser, then you also subscribe to having to test in those browsers, which is a massive and colossal waste of your time in most cases. Yeah. So it's really not helping you as a company either. It just gives you a a sense of uh, fulfillment, like, oh, yeah, I, I did this because I used this library, but you didn't even test in it, so no. I think all, like a lot of these things that you've been talking about, um, I like this uh, the site scanner that yeah. you also brought up in, in your presentation, like the modern IE slash URL scan, I think it's called, but either way, yeah, modern. Dev.modern. Dev.modern IE. Dev. 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 <coughs> no, that is actually, re- it redirects to a new page right now because we're not modern.ie anymore because we're now Edge. Dev. Okay. Microsoft. And we don't have an edge com. domain because it's too expensive. Uh. Either way, if you go to dev.modern.ie... If you look for static search, static <laughs> s- Microsoft static scan on your search engine of choice, and so, you can find it. So a scanner that checks for um, if you use old libraries, it checks for vendor prefixes, browser yeah. detection, vendor prefixes, like a lot of those things. Plus, you can use it... Um, in-house. Yeah, you can use it behind a firewall. You can run it as an automated build system as well. Mm-hmm. It's written in Node. It's written in JavaScript. And it's uh, it really gives you a good insight of like the main problems that your site might have that you put in there five years ago not to have problem with exactly. old you know, browsers, but are now just ballast of the web, really. And it, it really has nothing to do with Edge 
more than no, it goes. No, it, it's an interoperability tool. Yeah. It works on all browsers and it tests for it tests also for the functionality of all browsers. So yeah, I recommend everyone to use that. I like it a lot. Uh, I, I'm really interested to, to hear your view on single page application. You was talking about the offline support now, and it seems that uh, the web is will be a more competent app container for for different kinds of apps and so on. What do you think about single page application? Is is this also a, a thing that we are going too far with? Yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, single-page applications became a massive fad because, again, they give people the idea that their product is much more than it is. People don't uh, – I mean, every single year I was a web developer, I always got the thing like, oh, I don't want to link to somewhere else because then people leave my website. And I'm like, yes, this is what the web works. And if they, if you gave them what they, were, what they were coming for, they have a good memory of your website and they come back to your website. With a single-page application, we tried to – to get people into our environment and keep them in there. And this is the biggest mistake that people make on the web. This is the same with, like, paywalls. This is the same with, with, with uh, sites that, like, oh, do you really want to leave this website? Yes, I made that choice already. Please don't ask me again. So single-page applications make total sense if you have to do things in it. There's a difference between look at things and do things applications. So do things applications, single page applications make a lot of sense. But we got very, very overexcited about making everything a single page application. It has a use case and the use case is something you have to analyze and if it's if it for example when uh, uh, when google came out with google web toolkit and uh, and then it came up with other things that are all spas and they turned blogger into a single page application that was the most nonsensical thing i've seen for a long long time because a blog a blog by definition is not a single page application a blog is a article collection So I could link to every article. I could embed every article somewhere else with RSS. I could uh, I could basically just read that one article and save it and print it out if I wanted to. I don't go to christianheilman.com and then do a search of all my articles. My in my uh, how you find my blog is through search engines, and this is how a blog should work. It shouldn't be a single page application. So the problem with single page applications that people don't uh, uh, underestimate. Is that you simulate everything the browser does, bookmarking, going backwards and forwards inside your application, right-clicking, opening in a new tab, um, tapping it as a bookmark to your homepage, these kind of things, all the things you have to simulate in a single-page application that the browser automatically does for us, preloading the next content, which you can do with prefetch and pre-render in browsers. Nowadays, just with a meta tag, you could do that in 1998. And in, in single-page applications, we had to do that. And a lot of single-page applications also become dependent on JavaScript which is not a problem because JavaScript is available, but it is a problem because JavaScript is fragile, as I said before. Any single JavaScript error, which might be an ad on your page, will mean there's no content any longer. My and biggest pet peeve there is that when they don't do those things right, like, for example, going back in the browser, and you push back on the back button and nothing happens... Yeah, or you go back to the last page and you lose everything yeah. that you did in that the one. backspace issue. Yeah. Dude, that's got me so many times on this piece. Wow. <laughs> So uh, the, the same recommendation that you should start with a, a web that are mobile first, you should start with a web that are not single-page application. It depends what you want to do. If mm -hmm. your application is a single-page application that is a massively complex form, for example, or a... Um, a timesheet system, these kind of things. I mean, there's, there's no point making something like Excel a website 
but a single page application in Excel makes total sense. So it's it's a, it's a form factor, and depending on what your application should do or what you're what you're building, you use an SPA or you don't use an SPA. But we got overly exciting of building SPAs. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with static page generators. I talked about. I've got four hundred twelve different static page generators right now because people got very exciting of rendering out static HTML by using uh, uh, Markdown and JavaScript. And I'm like, why didn't you write HTML then? <laughs> it's a very bizarre thing that we always find these things to make them better and a lot of times the web is already good enough we just don't give it the credit that it is and we don't talk to end users using it because uh, I mean for example when we did user research in Edge I did not realize that the home button is huge people use the home button the whole time I've never used a home button in my whole life <laughs> the same with like a print button you know, like uh, I use uh, when people put like a print button on their page, and I'm like, why do you do this? There's a print button in the browser, or I do command P to print the thing. But people needed print buttons because it is it's like a Linus blanket. Yeah, it's like they did that standard user or yeah. slash my mom. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, I don't know slash slash your mom. That's not wrong. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Let's drop that. <laughs> Use your hatred. Uh, like <laughs> no, I mean it's a Linus blanket. Sometimes people want interface elements that don't seem to make sense for us because we're not we're technically knowledgeable. Like a res- reset button on a form, for example. Mm-hmm. I always found that more of an error-prone thing to put in there, but some people mm-hmm. like it and some people need it. So, again, user testing is a really, yeah. really good thing. And then, like, so I'm doing a lot of UX talks, and we call that effectively invisible elements when it's things that are hidden. We you know about them, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. I think my favorite is also when we did user testing in Yahoo and we showed a product with a Yahoo logo on top of it. And then we went, instead of the Yahoo office, we hired an office from a little startup and we put another logo on top of the same product. We got a completely different result. Yeah. So people actually have preconception about software being by a certain company and being good or bad. So you get really, really bad user testing results if you do that. So cloaking your own products as uh, competitors sometimes get you really interesting results. Didn't we do that with uh, Microsoft? Vista. What was the name of the... We, we did a new version of the operating system called Mojave. Mo- Mojave? Uh, do you remember that? And then we got better user uh, user testing support. Uh, user better, uh, uh, to be fair, I want to forget about Vista. <laughs> so, dude, um, I'm, I'm going to see if I'm going to get on your angry side. So how will we justify the compact view list in Edge? Well, we justified because lots of people were relying on us making doing the wrong thing in the past. There's lots and lots of, and also our products build things only for uh, for IE and didn't work on other things. I remember .NET 1.0 was basically like it was for IE 6 and every other browser was Netscape 4 or got the interface for Netscape 4 and you're like that didn't make any sense so we built we dug that hole ourselves and we cannot just take the rug out of people because there's million dollar companies with thousands and thousands of users of products and we cannot just say like well Edge doesn't support your stuff anymore sucks to be you you have to rewrite that thing that you spent the last 20 years on so the compat mode I think it's a, it's, it's a good way out because it means that products that are not maintained anymore and will not get maintained because there's no budget to maintain them will still work in the browser that comes with the operating system. We cannot just say, okay, the operating system that you build stuff for doesn't work anymore. But uh, on the positive side, like the um, the browser stats will not show that they're using the old browsers anymore. No. 
And also, it's it's uh, it's basically only when you need it. So when I go with Edge in my Windows Windows 10 machine and I go to an internal website like any of them that we have to use right now, like expenses or travel, yeah. it just switches to Internet Explorer 11 without asking me. I know that thing works. So for end users, it's not confusing to say like, oh, by the way, you have to go back to IE 11 now because the other browser sucks. It basically is, okay, this needs that functionality. So it, it I mean, in essence, what I really would love to have is like it inside Edge that it basically it gets like a web viewy thing inside Edge and, and do the IE11 there so we don't even have two browsers any longer but I might now have pissed off my whole team uh, let's see wouldn't that be so like going back to how the project Spartan thing was as well kind of or like yeah. a Chrome frame yeah remember that one wow <laughs> you know the last question now. What, what do you think about the future for, for Edge and the, the new product you are part of? I want people to not think about Edge. I want people to think about it as just another uh, HTML5 browser with ES6 support. I don't. I want people in general not to think about browsers anymore because we all try to be as compatible with each other. Every time as developers we think about browsers, we start building functionality for one of them, and then other browsers have to sim- have to repeat that in their product, and that doesn't help anybody. We complain that browsers are too huge, too slow, but at the same time we write a lot of code that only works in one browser so other browsers to just show our stuff have to simulate what these browsers do so we're actually digging our own hole here it's not a good idea so I, I, I want people to uh, to know that Edge is the browser of Windows 10, that every Windows 10 user will have the browser there, and it will also for them to understand that if you build something that works in Chrome, it will work in Edge, and you don't have to worry about it. I want it to be the worryless browser rather than like the, uh, the terrible browser I always have yeah. to do something extra for. And also maybe and throw in there to use more feature detection than browser detection. Yeah, I mean, that's, that to me is just general logical programming, and it just fascinates me how many developers are not logical about this. As I said, my example is always like, you don't jump into a river if you don't know it's deep enough. But we do that with, like, browsers all the time. Instead of just using feature detection for a feature and then using it, and even even more interesting, like a lot of people do feature detection for one and then use another one. So why don't you just hmm. test for the feature that you're going to use <laughs> and uh, then like, well, but then I have to test for every feature. No, you only have to test for the feature that you're using. So if you make a list of the features that you want to use and write a test suite for that, you're done. Yeah. And not test for everything. And every time you add a new one, you add it to that test suite and you're done as well. I mean, that's where things like Modernizer became an overload as well. Like, a Modernizer came out with HTML5 and they got testing and everything. Thing. And then people use Modernizer for everything. And all of a sudden, you get like 600 classes on your HTML element that you don't use because yeah. uh, browsers back then had massive incompatibilities with each other, which we don't have any longer now. So a lot of these things can go away. Uh, yeah, in, in, in essence, we have to understand that the things that can go away have now gone away. So take out all these old checks that we don't need anymore, but write checks for the things that you use, not for assuming you know what a browser is. Adrian Bateman, my colleague, has written a good article about this where it's like uh, people test for things not because they actually want to use them, but they test for things to detect a browser. Yeah. And detecting a browser is a very, very unreliable way of coding. It's just it's impossible to detect a browser. I mean, when I worked with uh, with Facebook and we did a few tests there, we found like over two hundred thirty thousand user agents in use, 
and that could be anything. And, uh, and I mean, I can even f uh, change my, my user agent in the browser and simulate that I'm another browser. Exactly, and that's sometimes what... You do? <laughs> like yeah, I mean, there were some airlines in Europe, the cheap airlines, that when you pretended to be Internet Explorer 6, you got cheaper prices than when you were with a Safari. Yeah. Which is hilarious, but that's the way it actually worked. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, yeah, feature... I pretended I'd been some other yeah. browser. Capability testing is the way of the future rather than, like, user agent testing. And uh, uh, please don't rely on a name of a thing. Always rely on what it can do. I mean, I can call myself a dancer, but until you see me dancing, you know it's not true. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, and thank you for the dance. Chris. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>